we are uh, wrapping up next week. We're going to try if we have if we're all still here next week um, after the blizzard. We're going to try and wrap up the tenth chapter of the Gospel of Mark with the story of blind Bartimaeus. And today we're looking at a request made by two of the disciples. The title of the message is The Height of Being Low. And we're going to begin reading in verse 35, if you will stand with me for the reading of the word. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit on, one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You may be seated. Father, I just pray once more that the word penetrate our hearts. That it pierce us to our very core, Father God. And that we understand what you are saying to us today. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word as you have for countless generations before us. I pray you speak to those who need to be convicted and speak to those who need to be comforted and in a way that, that does both for, for each party, Lord. God, I just pray you use my humble gifts and talents this morning to, to minister to your church today. In Jesus' name. So we read this and we try to understand the whole text and what Mark is writing to us and what he's truthfully getting across. The one point I think we can take away from this, the one thing I hope you write this down, put this in your bulletin or whatever, tuck it away. To make a true impact in, the, in Christ's kingdom... And so many of us want to do that. So many of us want to leave our mark, right? To do that, pride must fall and humility must rise. I'll say it again. To make a true impact in Christ's kingdom, pride must fall and humility must rise. A while back, I, I did a sermon. It was called, How to Ruin the People of God in Five Easy Steps. And some of you might remember that. Some of you might wish you could forget it. But it was there nonetheless. And during that message on Ahab and Jezebel, we looked at how they attempted or at least tried their best to ruin the people of Israel. The first step I mentioned was to throw a fit. When you don't get your way, when you're unhappy with the way things are going, if you don't feel you, you're getting what you deserve, throw a fit. Second was let someone else lead you. 
Let someone who is not your pastor, who is not uh, someone who is in God-ordained leadership over you, let them lead you and change your opinions and influence your actions. Third was undermine the word of God. And some of you might remember the series we did on leadership and servanthood. Try to undermine what the Bible says about leadership and servanthood, and you'll find yourself ruining the people of God. Fourth was easy, gossip. Gossip and slander. That's a good way to divide a church and bring disruption. Fifth was enjoy the fruit of your supposed victory, because it's not really a victory, but try to enjoy the chaos that you've caused. Simply put, if we were to wrap that entire message up, we see it again here in our text. Put your own selfish desires ahead of everyone else's, ahead of everyone else's needs. Let your own selfish, prideful actions reign and, and try to rule over others. We shouldn't do that. We must not do that. If we're to be a church that's unified, if we're to be a church that grows together, loves one another, pride has to fall and humility has to rise. Pride is thinking of yourself above others. So when we think about that, we have to understand that humility is thinking of others first. It is not self-neglect. It is not permitting others to abuse you. It's seeing others' needs as a priority. That's humility. If we want to become great, we have to become servants, Jesus says. Servants of all others. Our humility in our lives, has to reflect the humility of Christ. And we read back in verses 35 and 36, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And we read that, we understand in the context of last week's message, verses 32, 33, and 34, no real time has passed. They are still on their way to Jerusalem. They're still marching towards the city. And they came up to Jesus because Jesus was leading the pack. Jesus was leading the procession. He was leading the disciples, yes, but he was also leading all those pilgrims who were on the same road, who were on their way to celebrate Passover. And so the, these two brothers, James and John, march up to Jesus. They catch up to him. And they make their request. Now we look at James and John. You look at their past. We know who they were. They were fishermen. We see them first in chapter 1, specifically verses 19 and 20, here in the Gospel of Mark. They were the third and fourth disciples called. But what's their future hold? Well, Acts 12 tells us that Herod will put James to death with the sword. Around the same time, he arrests Peter. And Peter, of course, will have a miraculous escape from prison. Church history tells us about John. John will also be martyred in a sense. He will not be put to death, but they will try to kill him. They will burn him. They will try to boil him in oil. And when everything they try doesn't seem to stick, in fact, it was nothing more than a warm bath in that oil for John, the Roman emperor gets frustrated and exiles him to an, isle, an island called Patmos where he will write what we call the book of Revelation. Prior to that, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and his gospel. Matthew's account of this story tells us something kind of awkward about the entire exchange, that their mother is actually the one who made the request. How many of you in here are moms? Raise your hand. 
Yeah? About at least half of everyone here today. How many of you have ever went to your son's job and insisted their boss give him a raise? That would be kind of an awkward thing, right? I can't imagine when I was in high school working at McDonald's, my mom coming in and telling the owner of the company, you need to promote him to manager. No, mom, please leave. Take your fries. Go home, right? It's not like that for James and John. And Mark's writing is making it very clear this is something that they wanted. Now, some speculate that Matthew includes that because James and John's mom was a little more vulnerable, possibly. Maybe Jesus would be more likely to give in to her. Or maybe even she was somehow distantly related to Jesus and she was trying to pull some family strings. We're not really told that in Scripture. But what we do see is the desire of James and John is to rule in the kingdom. And so they come to him and they say, Teacher, not Lord, not Curios, not, not Master. In a sense, what they're saying is they're assuming that everything's pretty much done. He said the whole purpose he came was to teach and to preach. And so they are saying this in a way to understand and say they understand that his kingdom is basically already established. Whatever's going to take place in Jerusalem is just a mere formality. He is... He is the king of kings. He's the, he's the king of the Jews. They understand this. And they're going to ask him this question. And if you notice when they ask him, they want a promise of a guarantee. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You understand, they are saying to him, whatever we ask, you're going to agree to do that. They're asking him as a teacher, but they are, make no doubt about this, they are asking for the king's favor. They could be pointing back to Peter's words earlier in the chapter. Peter said to Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And maybe they're trying to cash in on that. Maybe they're trying to say, hey, we did too. Remember, we were with Peter that same day. We gave up and we left our dad. We left our business. We have left everything and followed you. And therefore, Jesus, give us whatever we ask. Now they, they feel after three years of following this carpenter rabbi through the wilderness, through the desert, over the sea, and everywhere in between, they feel they are due something. And not only do they ask, they insist upon a guarantee of an answer. Now, most kings, and we see this even within Scripture, most kings, when someone would come to them and make a request, they would put some kind of limit on it. We see it way back in the book of Esther. When Esther comes to Xerxes and, and she wants to make a request, he says, anything you want up to half my kingdom. Even Herod has the sense to do this. When Herodias' daughter comes to him and wants a request, anything you ask, even up to half my kingdom, they're guaranteeing it. And you know what Jesus says? What do you want me to do? There's no limit as to what we can ask Jesus for. And we're going to see that play out later in, in the Gospel of Mark. He does not put limits on our prayers, but he will answer in accordance with his will. We have to keep that in mind. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, common sense would say, hey, whoa, he didn't give us any limits. 
maybe proceed with caution. It's kind of like whenever I was at my grandma's house as a little boy and, and she would let me have cookies without limits. And without limits, little boy is going to eat all the cookies. All right? And I did. And I have never thrown up Nilla wafers in my life since then because I've never ate them since then. Okay? Sometimes limits to our wants and our desires are obviously very good for us. Jesus knows this. Jesus, being God, knew their hearts. He knew their question. He knew what they were going to ask before they even caught up with him that day. He's God. He's sovereign. He's not caught unaware. And so when they come and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He's not asking them because he doesn't know. He's asking them because he wants them to say it so everyone else can hear it because this is a teachable moment moment for everyone. James and John are not just two of the twelve. Verse 37 says, they said to them, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. They're not just two of the twelve. They are two of the inner three and that's not enough for them. They want more. You realize in this request, what they are saying to Jesus is we want to be second only to you in the coming kingdom. We want to rule directly under you. That's a very bold request. Two men, very entitled in this demand. Two men who have witnessed things prophets had dreamed about, things we wish we could build a time machine and go back and see, and they come to Jesus and, and have the gall to ask this. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus appear as he appears in heaven. They saw Jesus standing beside Moses and Elijah. And it was Peter who said, Lord, let's, let's build tents for you and Moses and Elijah and let's just stay up here. And James and John may be thinking, hey, we had enough sense to stay quiet. We didn't ruin it. We didn't scare away James, uh, Moses and Elijah. We, we were quiet. Maybe we should be the number two guys in the coming kingdom. We may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. How prideful. How self-centered. How self-serving. And yet, church, we have to ask, don't we do the exact same thing? Do we not rationalize our pride more than any other sin we rationalize it through the scope of self-preservation. We rationalize it through the scope of self-care, self-worth, self-centeredness, selfish desires. You see, it's easy for James and John to rationalize because they're already in Jesus' inner circle, because they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have to remember, too, they were well-connected within the religious society. Later in, in John's gospel, John 18, and I mentioned this way back in chapter 1, John is well-known to the chief priests, likely because of who his dad is, Zebedee. We hear his name almost exclusively with James and John. They are the sons of Zebedee. In fact, it's not till around Acts chapter 12 James, the brother of John, is how he's described, and Zebedee is lost. Zebedee's forgotten. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they are the only disciples whose father is mentioned 
exclusively with them almost throughout the entirety of the Gospels. Zebedee was likely very well known, very well off. Now I will say Peter's father's name is mentioned in John 1.42. Jesus is changing his identity, changing the identity of Peter. He says, you're Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of John. You shall be called Kephos, or Cephas is how we often pronounce it, which is translated back into the Greek as Peter, or Peter. And Jesus is changing his identity. You will no longer be known as son of John. You'll be known as Peter. And the only time any other disciple's father that I could find his, his dad is mentioned is in the case of another disciple, equally famous, Judas. And it's only mentioned so we don't get him mixed up with the other disciple named Judas. So we don't get confused. And remember, they are known by their father, but it is their mother who is behind the request. It's not just a request to be near to Jesus and his triumph. It's not just a request to sit beside him in victory. Like I said, they want to be second only to Jesus in the kingdom. It is ambition, not loyalty, that drives them to ask this this day. In pride, they were not satisfied with where they were in Christ. They wanted more. They wanted to make their mark in the kingdom. They wanted to make an impact. It was their own pridefulness that caused them to ask this question, but their pride must fall and their humility needs to rise. And that's where Jesus begins to address them. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You don't know what you're asking. Truthfully, they had no idea they did not know the content of Christ's future, and they did not understand the context of his kingdom. In pride, they want all the good, but they don't want any of the cost. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, he sees this trend in modern Christianity as well. Jesus says, ask, and so we pray with the attitude of my will be done, not thy will be done. It also rings of the Lord helps those who help themselves. You can kind of see that, right? But you will not find that in the Bible. You will not find a scripture that, te that testifies to that. Hughes compares it to the modern word of faith movement, and he quotes this parody song. He says, name it, claim it, that's what faith's about. You can have what you want if you have no doubt. So make your wish list and keep on believing, and find, you'll find yourself perpetually receiving. Church, that is nonsense. That is completely ignorant of how prayer works, of the commands of Jesus, and how we ask him and make requests known. Church, I would, I would go so far as to say that is thumb-suckingly immature Christianity that tries to push that narrative. And yet this is what James and John have done. We may rebuke them, but in our own selfishness, we quickly find we are them. We become them. Because we want what we want. Amen? We rationalize things. And we will twist Jesus' own words at times even to make it happen. We will twist scripture to make it true. I think one of a few verses I have 
written down that, that are so often victims of this thing. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when you read that, oh, that sounds so nice. Until you read it in context and understand he is taking away your sinful desires and he is replacing them with his desires. So he's giving you the desires of your heart, meaning he's giving you better desires in your heart. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. And we love that verse because we like to use Jesus's name like it's a magic phrase, like it's magic words, like it's a spell book. Ask in Jesus's name for the jets to win sometimes. See how far that goes. Believe me, I've tried. Ask for the murder of a politician. Well, I mean, that's supposed to work, right? No. When we are asking in his name, we are asking for his will. We are saying, but we submit, we can ask whatever we want, but we are saying when we ask in his name, but your will be done. We submit to your name. We submit to your directives. We submit to your will. It's another one. This was brought up on a Wednesday night in a Bible study. I thought I would address it again. Matthew 18, 18 through 20, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who's in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Church, that has nothing to do with making worldly, fleshly requests. It has to do with judging someone rightly someone who has wronged an individual or who has wronged the church, knowing Christ is present in those moments is to keep the, the accusations and the outcome just as Christ is a witness to all. When we say these things, when we take these verses and we, we use them for our own selfish purposes or we claim them to mean what we want, and I've heard people say that, we are not standing on the promises of God. We are not uh, declaring the promises of Scripture. We are making the Bible our own spell book and we're trying to twist Jesus' arm using his words by twisting his words and twisting his Scripture to get what we want. And that's the same thing James and John do in this passage. It's exactly what they're doing to him. Yeah, Jesus, you said we could have whatever we want. Jesus' reply to them would be the same to those who do that with Scripture. You do not know what you're doing. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That's Old Testament symbolism for suffering the wrath of God. There are many verses which speak to that. I'll only name a couple. Psalm 75, 8, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained the dregs. Jesus is telling them that he is going to have God's wrath poured out upon him on the cross. He's just alluded to this not that long ago, right? Verses 32, 33, 34. He is talking about how he is an atonement for our sins. God's wrath will be satisfied upon him as he is the sacrifice. 
James and John could not suffer that. They were sinful, fleshly people. They had no idea what they were saying. But Jesus says, oh, but you will suffer. When Jesus refers to baptism, they might be thinking water. Yeah, we could get dunked in the Jordan like John the Baptist did for you. Sure, that's no big deal. But Jesus is referring to his death with hope that he has for deliverance, with resurrection in mind. Now, Jesus asking them this alone is an implication that they could not handle what he was going to go through. Asking this is giving them an out. Asking this is giving them an opportunity to operate in humility, but they won't. Instead, we see their pride, verses 39 and 40. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is, a, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. They're not able not yet. When the disciples are scattered, it'll be because Jesus is arrested and they're afraid they are going to suffer alongside him. John will, as we've established, John will follow at a distance. John will get access to the trial. He's the only one. James will run. James will hide with the other disciples. And yet at Pentecost, which will happen not that long in their future, they will be empowered to be his witnesses. They'll be empowered to be his martyrs. That's what the Greek word is, martis. They will pay the price of preaching the cross. This is what apostles do. Apostolos, they are representatives of Christ, both in preaching and in suffering. Apostles suffer as Christ suffered, representing him. But to sit at his side, that's not his, his place to give them. If you remember that series a while back, The Leadership and Servanthood, I, I said several times in, that mess, in those messages that there is perfect submission in the Trinity, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are some things the Father does that he does not share with the Son, like the time of his return, Mark 30, 13 will, will speak to this. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, Jesus now ascended, sitting at his right hand. Maybe they've discussed it. Maybe Jesus knows. I don't know. I've not been there. But the point Jesus is making is that the rank within the kingdom, it's not granted by somebody's works. It's not granted by somebody's ambitions. It's bestowed only by the Father's sovereign will. In Christ saying this, he's admitting his own humility, which seems kind of ironic for someone to say they're humble unless it's true. Jesus is the most humble person in all eternity. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He doesn't stop being God. His divinity is not limited. It's veiled as he steps out of heaven and takes on the form of a man and lives a sinless life. And he made him, 
He, being the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin. In other words, every sin from all of history was poured upon him on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, if you are in Christ, he has taken your sin upon himself, every sin that was ever committed, to the point when the Father looks at Christ on the cross, he sees your sin. And now, because of the cross, because of the shed blood on the cross, when the Father looks at you, he sees the purity of Christ. What a beautiful exchange. I'll take it. I'll submit my life to that because of the humility of Christ. In saying this, this is a gentle rebuke of James and John. They don't catch it. Their pride swelling has its consequences. We read verse 41. Hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. The ten are indignant, so says the NASB. The Greek is a little more than that. They're a little more than just upset about it. King James actually says they were much displeased with James and John. They're not just angry. The ten are let down. They're hurt. They're offended. They're insulted. But that might cause you to want to step back and and ask, did James and John just beat them to the punch? Did James and John just ask what they wished they had the courage to ask? Are they feeling belittled or are they feeling cheated? Is their attitude, how dare they? Or is their attitude, why didn't I think of that? This is kind of call back to uh, chapter 9, verse 34. They kept silent for on the way they discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Who's the greatest disciple? Who's the best disciple? And James and John couldn't let it go. And so now this day on the road to Jerusalem, they catch up with him and they ask again. And the message is the same. Their pride needs to fall and their humility must rise. Now we read in verse 42. It's the joy of not preaching from an iPad. I my Bible mixed up. Uh, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. You understand Jesus stops the whole procession again. He stops and he calls the ten along with James and John, to himself. And he does this because he doesn't want the ten to gang up on James and John. He does this because he doesn't want things to spiral out of control. He does this because he doesn't want division to creep in to his disciples. And he does this because he's not just addressing two men. He's not just addressing 12 men. He's addressing a problem with all men. Draw your attention for just a moment to Jesus' mentioning of the Gentiles. He says how they govern, how they lead, how they rule their people. Why does he mention the Gentiles? We know for a fact the Jewish leaders had done the same stuff. They were just as corrupt. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 3, it was the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who'd taken a man with a withered hand, planted him in the synagogue, hoping they could catch Jesus healing him on a Sabbath so they could condemn him for it. The, the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people, moved the common folk around like pawns in this scheme. They were just as corrupt. 
And they were this way because they had deviated from God's plans and God's design and God's law. With that noted, the Sadducees and the Herodians had completely, by this point in history, adopted Gentile models for leadership and for power. And where do we see this exact same thing today? In the church. We see many pastors who are businessmen and social media influencers before they are theologians, apologists, and shepherds. When I became your pastor, I don't know how many leadership books, I, lo- I literally lost count of how many leadership books I should read where people had taken worldly principles and tried to apply them to the church. Al Mohler, John Maxwell. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying they're bad books. But the church is not a worldly business. Books about church growth versus evangelism. They're not necessarily one and the same. Worldly paradigms do not fit and have no place in Christ's church. Jesus is making that crystal clear here. He says in verse 43 and 45, but it must not, it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. It's not to be this way with you. It's not this way in the church. We don't bring in the world's model for kingdom building because Christ's kingdom is not of this world. He says that clearly in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. So why try and adapt? Why try and and make it fit? The pagan approach will never work in the bride of Christ. And if it does, it will not last. It is not sustainable. And ultimately, all that ends up happening is we end up making the church look more like the world rather than reaching the world. We don't, I know this is going to blow some minds today and maybe even offend somebody, but the truth is we do not want to appeal to the world. We don't. We want to be a light in the world, exposing its darkness. To be like the world is to be less like Christ. This was his prayer, by the way. This was the, when Jesus had his last opportunity to pray where his disciples could hear it. This is what he said. He's speaking to the Father. He said, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Church, we are in the world, but we are not to be like the world We're not to lead like them, but to be led by Christ, leading others to Christ. And what Jesus says here in our text, it flies in the face of everything the world teaches, everything the world thinks, everything the world wants. Whoever wants to be great, the Greek word is megas, mega, big. Whoever wants to be predominant or significant, Jesus says they have to be a servant, We know this word from another series, diakonos. They have to be a deacon. They have to be someone who is willing to wipe tables and wait tables and serve others. Someone who serves how they can, where they can, when they can. Whoever wants to be first, that's the Greek word protos. Whoever wants to be ranking over others, being ahead of others, Jesus says they shall be a doulos, a slave the lowest of all. 
I don't like that. I'm nobody's slave. I'm a free American. Not if you're in Christ. These things seem contradictory, don't they? And yet in the church, this is the way he says it has to be. You want to be first, be last. You want to be advanced, be low. You want to be ahead, get to the back. You want to lead, be a follower. You want authority, grab a toilet brush and start scrubbing. Christ himself models this for us. If you remember last week, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Messiah himself did not come to be served, but to be an example of what it looks like to serve. Jesus always models what he expects of us, and we may not always get it right, and we may not always do it perfectly, but he sets the standard for which we're to live up to. He is the apex servant leader. He had a life of humility, a life of service, In John 13, he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. You understand, in washing people's feet, Hebrew slaves were not even expected to do such a thing. It was the lowest of the lowest thing you could do for a guest. And yet the king of kings had stepped out of heaven, had taught for the better part of three years, he grabs a towel, a pitcher of water, and he begins to wash the feet of the men who would worship him as God. More than that, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Ransom here is the Greek, it's the price paid to free a slave, the word litron. And in place of is So, well, in English, it's a prefix, anti. And it means in place of. This is his substitutionary death on behalf of all who will put their faith in him. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. We see Paul write about it in Romans 8. He said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. The condemned sin is in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you have been bought with a price. He was the ransom. Therefore glorify God in your body. Paul goes on in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace. I could go on and on. This is the beauty of what was said in verses 32 to 34. Jesus will suffer and die. And this ransom being paid, this is the purpose. The ransom was not paid to the earth to free his body. And it certainly was not paid to the devil. He is a defeated foe, not a ruler to be satisfied. That ransom was paid to God himself to satisfy his justice, his wrath against sin. 
In Christ paying that ransom, he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed, says Peter. 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus is the example of ultimate humility. And while he had full confidence, he knew who he was, he knew what he was, he knew why he had come, he also knew what purpose he would fulfill, and he was not prideful about that. Well, he had the power to take over the whole planet. He would lower himself to death on a cross of a criminal. Well, he could have escaped. He could have walked in a different direction. He could have called angels to help him. He willingly walked towards Jerusalem. He walked towards Golgotha Hill, towards death. He models for us the height of being low. He models for us what pride, falling, humility, rising should look like. It does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean being abused or a punching bag. It means being willing to love, being willing to give, being willing to serve others before ourselves as Christ did for us. I'm going to ask the music team to come back this morning. A while back when I, I gave that message on how to ruin the people of God, I, I said, if you find yourself defending Ahab or Jezebel, you might have a problem. You might be an Ahab or a Jezebel. I had someone come to me and say, Pastor, I think I am an Ahab. I think I am potentially a Jezebel. And no, no, because an Ahab and a Jezebel does not think that way. And if that is you, then you need to repent. A Jezebel says, well, she may have been an idolater. She might have been a vile person, but look at her leadership skills. Pride says the problem is never me. Pride says I don't need to change. I don't need to learn. I don't need to grow. Everyone else does. Now, a day like today, a message like this, nobody wants to come to the altar, right? Nobody wants to say, well, that was me. That's our pride. And I don't say that so that everyone does come to the altar. So today, take time where you are to pray. Pray alone, by yourself, or grab a friend. If you do want someone to pray for you, by all means, we'd be happy to pray for you. But the best way to destroy pride is by acknowledging that it's there. That's how pride falls. Pride is like a cockroach. When you turn on the light, it scatters. So we're going to sing one last song, and I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we do, and, and I'll close this out in a word of prayer. I know with the weather coming, some of you are antsy to go, so I understand that as well. But I would ask you, if you, take, if you want to take time for fellowship, please take it down the slope to the, the tables and chairs. Last week kind of got a little loud, so just be respectful of those praying. And we're just going to enter into a time of worship and dismissal.